Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, the tennis podcast by fans on today's Miami Week 2 catch-up. Hercash makes history with Miami win. Barty secures back-to-back titles. And Evans and Skupski fall just short in the doubles final to Mektic and Pavic. Kim, it's Easter Sunday in the UK. We're in the midst of four days off from work. Miami has just come to a close. Ash Barty and Hubert Herkage are our singles champions. And I've got to, I've got to be honest. It's, it's, you know, just saying that it feels quite surprising. I know Ash Barty was the number one seed, but I mean, Hubert Herkage, that was just completely, completely out of nowhere. Yeah, her cash sinner final. I don't think we really expected <laughs> that, but it was still very interesting, enjoyable and a sign of, of finals to come, I think. So, yeah, let, let, let's start there, Joel, because we've obviously just been watching it. Um, Easter Sunday, I've had my roast dinner, had a little bit of chocolate after my, uh, my ban over Lent. I did go for the roast lamb. I yesterday I saw, you know, the first time I think I've seen people queuing outside butcher shops and they're obviously all trying to get their roast lamb. Kim, quite controversially, I went for porked this evening. Um, oh, so okay. yeah, went, went a bit off uh, against off the beaten track, but yeah, I know I know roast lamb is like the traditional sort of Easter Sunday meal in the UK. Definitely, we're not vegans on this podcast, <laughs> are we, Joel? Discussing our roasted meats. Uh, but <laughs> let's start with the men's tournament because this was the first tournament without the big three, uh, I think since 2003. So long, long time ago that we haven't had Djokovic, Federer, Nadal. And, you know, we were kind of expecting that the top four seeds would make their way through to the semifinals. But in the end, it was only Andre Rublev that actually managed that feat. And he lost out to Herkaj, uh, who then went on to win the tournament. He's just beaten Yannick Sinner uh, in the final 7-6-6-4, just under two hours. Um, It was a bit of a topsy-turvy first set, wasn't it? I know um, Herkaj went three love up, Sinner pegged it back. Uh, Sinner had a chance to serve out that set and got broken to love at uh, 6-5 up. So then it went to the tie break, which which Herkaj won. And then Herkaj sort of promptly went four love up in the second set. I was sort of expecting a, like a Naomi Osaka-esque bagel in that second set because I just felt like, like Yannick Sinner was completely, you know, down and out, um, you know, early on. I think he was a bit, um, he was a bit sad from you know, losing that first set, particularly from, you know, serving from it. And I think, I think what was key in that first set really was, I think it ultimately experience showed. And you've got to remember Yannick Sinner. He's, I think, only played like 70 matches in total uh, or there or thereabouts anyway on the ATP tour. And I just think that lack of experience showed um, against his opponent, particularly when it came to the business end of that set. And even though it was a bit topsy-turvy and it got to a point where 
Sinner, you know, was you know was serving for it. He he really didn't grasp that moment, and you know, in a flash, I think Herkaj was was love forty on his serve, and and really, you know, from then it felt like Herkaj had sort of stemmed the you know had stemmed the the momentum that Sinner had generated, and I think to be honest, apart from a little blip in that second set, he was able to kind of see it out. Yeah, I think once he grabbed the first set, he, you know, he just seemed to have mm. that edge and obviously went off to a very quick lead in the second set. And I think Sinner at times was just too inconsistent when it mattered the most. And he did seem to be a bit nervous. Um, I mean, both of them, to be honest, at times were they were quite tentative and, you know, they're both quite aggressive. Um, but obviously, <laughs> when push came to shove, I think it was kind of like, oh, I'm just going to wait for, you know, the other person to make the error. I, I completely agree. I think in that first set, it was very, um, it, it was, I think looking at the kind of statistics, it was very much about who was going to make, I think, the less, the less unforced errors. And in that case, it was Herkaj because I think both, both players have played much better tennis throughout the week. And I think it was a bit of a shame both of them couldn't bring that sort of level that if they kind of showed throughout the last couple of weeks to the final, because it did feel like a match where the winner was going to be the one who wasn't necessarily playing the, like lights out tennis and hitting winners left, right and center from the baseline. It was more of a, who was going to like hit the, hit the ball least into the net. And I think kind of Sinner will be disappointed in the fact that he wasn't able to bring that sort of level that we saw, I think throughout the week. And I think her catch was just able to kind of bring it a bit more. Um, and I think, I, I just think with Sinner as well, actually, I mean, I mean, it was a very much a, a sort of baseline to baseline exchange throughout the whole match and I wondered whether Sinan needed to be able to have a bit more of a plan B or a bit more variety I mean I would have liked to have seen him come into the net but I don't think his game is is ready for him to come in and, and kill off the points kind of earlier but I feel like when they were just trading baseline to baseline more or less Herkaj was was coming out the winner yeah, I agree. I think, and, and that's where Sinner, you know, he's only 19. He's still so young. That's surely going to, yeah. going to come. He's going to build that variety into his game and also the experience playing, you know, at this level. And they were, they were the, you know, they, this is the first time they've both been in a Masters final. And it's actually the first final featuring two players outside the top 30 at a Masters level since 2003, the Paris Masters. Um, so it was, you know, it, it's, we haven't had this for a while. And, and as a result, actually, Herkash will be up into the top 20. Sinner's just going to be outside the top 20 at 21. So they're going up, up in the rankings as a result of their performances. Looking at that, uh, that statistic, Tim Hemman versus Andre Pavel was the last final in 2003. Mm. I remember that final because I'm pretty sure if you watch highlights on YouTube, that was when the Paris Masters just had singles lines. There were no tram lines on that tennis court. I'm pretty, pretty sure as a fan growing up, I always remember that moment kind of sticking out. But yeah, it has, it has not happened for, for a long time. And I think, you know, we were sort of expecting at least, you know, one of, um, Medvedev or Sissipas or Rublev or Zverev to, you know, get to the final. And lo and behold, it was a completely, um, you know, it was a, it was very much a surprise, I think, to, you know, you know, to everyone really. And even as, as tennis fans, you know, we, I think we've spoken about Yannick Sinner, Hubert Herkaj before as these great sort of prospects for the, for the game. And although they were kind of on our radar, I don't think you would have, you would have said that they were necessarily on the radar of the general public. 
Yeah, they're, they're definitely not household names, at least not yet. <laughs> I mean, a H- Hubert Hercash loves playing on a Floridian hardcore. <laughs> because he won the Delray Beach title quite recently. So he's, you know, two titles in Florida so far this year. So he's having a great time. And um, I don't, don't know what he's like on the clay, actually. Uh, obviously, we're going into the clay court season now. I'm wondering, you know, if this is going to be a bit of a sort of flash in the pan if he's going to be able to keep up this form um not sure but we'll you know we'll, we'll wait and see about that you know a lot of the kind of the chatter in the build-up to this was the fact that there was no big three and it was going to be you know who was going to make the most of that opportunity and i think a lot of people including ourselves were you know looking at the the, the obvious picks in in terms of you know those players like rublev and, and sisabas to kind of pick up that mantle but we've got to remember that you know it's a big field out there and i think I think consistency was the, the name of the game, really. And, and Herkaj was really able to kind of pull it together. And I, I do wonder whether, you know, having that run in, in Delray in probably quite similar conditions kind of really helped him. Because I do think that, you know, this tournament, you know, certainly for, you know, looking at it on TV, for me as a fan, it, it really did seem quite punishing at times and very challenging environment. It was... You know, I think the first week it was very humid. And then in the second week, you know, wind came in as a factor. And, you know, I think having probably played in maybe similar conditions in that Florida kind of climate, um, you know, might have done, you know, might have given Herkaj an advantage on on everyone else. Yeah, I mean, this this week he's been really really consistent and going into the final you know he'd beaten two top 10 players he'd he'd beaten a higher caliber of opponent you know wins over Rublev, Sitsipas, Raonic, um, Shapovalov you know they are they are great names to be getting consistent mm. wins over so and battling back from a set down in, in a couple of those matches as well so you know he's he's been on a real roll this week and he's he said well he's had a great great two weeks and um, I think as well you know it's interesting for me that Rublev in the semi-final you know Herkash won in two pretty comfortable sets six three six four and you know Rublev would definitely have been the favorite going into that match and I think it was quite interesting actually Rublev saying that he felt the pressure um I I guess that's because you know he was the highest ranked player left in the draw and you know he's been performing at such a high level been very consistent especially in the 500s uh but he just kind of I guess the expectation that he, you know, this was his biggest opportunity to go on to win his first Masters. He, he couldn't quite get a, a handle on it and, and lost out in the semis. Really interesting, those comments from Rublev, because I do kind of look at him in relation to Sisipas, Medvedev and Zverev. I think he has the most one-dimensional game at, at the moment in terms of that, you know, stay on the base, you know, hug the baseline, try and blow his kind of opponent across, you know, off, off the court and I think when that doesn't work for him or you know a player is able to kind of handle that that power that he he possesses he doesn't really have kind of uh like another option I think we saw that against uh I think you know he's shown that I think against Medvedev, Karatsev um and I think this week against Herkaj and you know the fact that he said also the the you know the pressure almost got to him you know it's a new it's a new situation for him and even though he's been been playing kind of great tennis consistent tennis at the 500 level you know he probably would have felt that this was his moment to make his mark at the the masters level so it definitely probably you know sh- you know showed on him and I I think that again like um like Sinner, he's going to need to add more variety into his game that I think would I, I think bringing up bring him up to the more varied I think level that maybe someone like a Medvedev or a Sissipas, um has in their game. 
Yeah, definitely. I think he's got work to do. I and mean, we've said that before. Mm. And, you know, but again, he's also still very young. So I guess we just expect so much so early <laughs> from players, don't we? Because of the likes of Rafa breaking on at such a young age, you know, but we realise now that he is the exception rather than the rule. And I mean, the others that, you know, you just sort of mentioned Medvedev, I think, you know, he was sort of pretty physically done in. Uh, I think it's safe to say he certainly said that when he lost out to Bautista Ragu that, you know, physically, this was just, you know, tough to get himself ready um, for this event and struggling. Obviously, we talked in our last podcast about him having cramps. Um, and then Sitsipas, he said that he felt quite stressed uh, over the last two weeks. And I don't know if that's because of just a to- the toll of playing on the tour, you know, with all of the restrictions and the regulations in, in place. It's just kind of getting to him. But, you know, he was a set up against Herkaj and lost. And, you know, I guess he'll be a bit disappointed with that because he you know he could well have been lifting the trophy if, if he hadn't have lost out in in that particular match yeah i think he was a set and a break up and we've seen i think you know the story of sissipas's season is that we've seen him in these really really good uh really really good opportunities uh you know the business end of tournaments but for some reason or, or another he's just lacking that killer instinct and that's really holding him back at the moment um, the fact that he's talking about that he felt kind of stressed over the last two weeks. I do think, you know, when he when he talks about his defeats, I do think he gets emotionally more sort of attached, sort of attached to his defeats than some of his other sort of contemporaries, and maybe that is kind of holding him back as well. And I, I wonder with Sissipas is that yes, I think his game is is very good at the moment, but I think a lot of his kind of you know challenges um in terms of reaching that nev- next level i think stem more from the the mental side because as i said he keeps winning the first set but then going on to lose and he's not able to kind of get the job done in in two and you know the more that happens i think the more the more you know his competition are going to think you know i'm always going to be in with a shot regardless of kind of what situation you know i'm in if i you know i'm a set down against stefanos sissapas yeah, I, you know, he's a deep thinker. He's a very philosophical guy. So comes with the territory, I think, which is great because, you know, he's certainly more interesting than a lot of other mm. players. But um, yeah, that's something that I think that detachment and kind of separation it is a work in progress. But I think all in all, Sinner, Herkash, the final, like both great guys, very respectful, very good friends as well. They've been playing doubles quite recently, um, got to the quarterfinals in Dubai together in the doubles. So really nice for both of them to kind of have this moment together as well, I think, you know, as the, the winner and the, and the runner up. It was so nice, wasn't it, in the, the ceremony? Sinner was like, oh, you're my best friend on tour. And Aww. I want, can we play some more doubles together? And, you know, I would obviously love, love to see that. Um, but yeah, it was a very, I be friends too. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very yeah it was a very friendly final that you know although I think you know it, it could have perhaps I think was maybe stunted by I think the you know the the nature of the event and the fact that both those players will have felt like this is my big opportunity to win my first ever Masters Series event I think more so for Yannick Sinner he's going to get those opportunities in the future yeah for sure and let's just have a quick look at what other 
events took place in Miami this week, Joel, because had a few things, uh, a lot of stuff concerning vaccines. Uh, I know Ben Rothenberg, uh, which I'm sure some of you may have seen on Twitter. He, he wrote about a lot of the players being quite ambivalent or negative towards the idea of them getting vaccinated. Uh, I think he put it out to quite a few of them in their press conferences um, and realized that a lot of players are quite skeptical uh, for various different reasons. You know, not all players, you know, people like Asaka have, have come out and said that, yeah, I'm going to get it whenever I can. And obviously, Simona Halep has already been vaccinated and been quite you know, public about that to kind of encourage others to do the same. But yeah, it was a bit worrying, I suppose, the likes of, uh, you know, Sabalenka, Rublev, Svitolina kind of saying that they're not really a fan. And I, I think, you know, they're quite hesitant. And I know that in a lot of countries, there is a bit of hesitancy and it's often stems from, you know, cultural reasons or um, health reasons or, you know, you're concerned or anxious about various risk factors. Uh, but I think some of the players were kind of saying that, well, actually, it's just inconvenient to get it because I'm going to have to take time out. I'm going to lose training days. I'm. It's not going to change my existence on the tour. I'm still going to have to isolate and be in a bubble and therefore why should I get it because it doesn't actually help me it's of no personal advantage I think a lot of them kind of are missing the reason why we're you know the healthy and the young and the people perhaps less likely to suffer from COVID are getting it so that's to help other people um you know it's not just about yourself it's if we're all going to get the vaccine it's for the benefit of wider society and I think a lot of that is being lost um which you know I don't think helps uh, some of the players reputations in in my book yeah, it feels a completely, complete world away, I think, from, you know, a few months ago when we saw Simona Halep post on her social media account that she was you know, getting a vaccine. And I think, you know, we saw that photo and we just thought, oh, everyone, you know, everyone else is going to now, you know, all the other kind of players are now going to kind of fall in line and, and, and take the vaccine as well. And, you know, of course they are, you know, they are role models and, and I think people will look at them. Uh, you know, in terms of kind of behaviors. And this for me was very kind of surprising to hear. Um, I think, you know, tennis is obviously a very global sport and, uh, you know, all that, all the players have their own sort of opinions on it. And I think the issue here is that, you know, what do the kind of the ATP and, and WTA do about it? Because I think the WTA are sort of like, yeah, this is a personal decision of the players. And that for me is a sort of point of view that doesn't lead to a sort of, compulsory element uh to the tour you know like a like a no vaccine no play situation whereas i think you know the atp are perhaps are a bit more you know are, are maybe incentivize it sounds like they're incentivizing taking the vaccines a little bit more you know we've already seen this week uh, you know talk about monte carlo and the fact that uh players who get the the vaccine are going to get preferential treatment so there's a real interesting sort of way. Well, how do you kind of implement or do you need to implement, uh, you know, players getting the vaccine? But uh, going back to kind of Simona Halep and, and you know, I, I do think that, you know, players need to, you know, players need to step up. And I think education is going to be a big part of that. Um, and it, it shows that there, I think there is work to be done, you know, from the, you know, the governing body sides to make sure that players understand the importance of the vaccine and the role it plays in helping in helping open up society, you know, society again. And it's not just, you know, about the players. It's about protecting, you know, all the fans, you know, that are in the stadium or, you know, everyone around you um, as, as well. 
Yeah, all the people working at the event, you know, the, the ball kids, the umpires, the staff, uh, for example, they all need to, like, everyone needs to be thinking about everyone involved in tennis, not just themselves. And I, I, sadly, I think we live in a very individualistic world and it's kind of everyone out for themselves. And there's quite a lack of um, caring for others and thinking and considering of other people. Um, I, I think in this whole pandemic, you know, not just tennis players, but generally, I agree with you. I think education is key. And I think it needs to be that, you know, it's as convenient as possible. So vaccinate the players while they're on the tour when there's a convenient period. I think like Monte Carlo have said that, for example, anyone playing coming on site who's already been vaccinated, they'll still have to be tested on arrival, but they wouldn't have to have that kind of isolation period um so those sorts of yeah giving incentives um you know those carrots to kind of get players to to do it and to actually think actually it's in my benefit to get vaccinated and if players are only going to be motivated by individualistic reasons then we'll have to kind of incentivize them in that way to get them to do it it doesn't feel like a long-term fix, but certainly in the, in the short term, it could definitely help. I think, you know, the issue, I think the challenge is that I think, you know, a lot of these, you know, players and, you know, just put in the kind of the bigger picture of kind of elite level athletes. I think they've been brought up in this kind of culture of, you know, you know, drugs and, you know, they're you know, being more aware of what is kind of put into their bodies and that they're, you know, responsible for that. And as, as a result of that, I think they're more guarded against kind of, you know, things that have kind of come up that they, you know, need to take. And as you said, I think that's where education kind of comes in to talk about the, you know, the benefits. And I think that's particularly important for, you know, a lot of these players who, you know, may have, you know, been playing tennis from five, six years old, not gone through, you know, like a traditional sort of pathway through school and education, or, you know, maybe are kind of missing out on that. And, you know, I think it's there for, you know, the, you know, the ATP and the WTA or whoever it is to come in and kind of give them, uh, you know, the, the right information to kind of, you know, talk about why this is important and why it's beneficial to you, but also beneficial, I think, to everyone around you. Yeah, they need public health 101 or, I mean, you, you can give them information, whether they'll listen mm. and actually take it on board is another thing. Um, but I do think that, um, Yes, I think with the doping, yeah, I understand that that point, but I'm pretty sure like the the world anti-doping bodies are not going to, you know, I'm sure they're going to approve mm. like any of the like, you know, approved vaccines that they're not going to be on the, the dodgy list for, for doping. But I, I guess, yeah, it's that idea of I mean, what, what am I putting in my system? But I would just say like the likes of Grigor Dimitrov, you know, he was quite unwell with COVID mm. and, you know, Stan Mavrinka. And you might think, okay, these are young, fit individuals, but it's like you, you can't just assume that you're not going to get it mm. because you're, you know, or get symptoms because you're a healthy young person. Like I'm sure Grigor Dimitrov would perhaps be the first one to say, oh, you should get the vaccine because I wouldn't want anyone to go through what I kind mm. of experienced with COVID. I mean, just, just finally on this, I mean, it, it feels inevitable at some point, maybe in the future, we're going to get to a point where Grand Sams might, you know, be like, you know, you if you want to play in our tournament, uh, you know, a, va a vaccine is is compulsory. Do you think, like, do you think that's the right approach, or do you think it should still be a sort of personal, you know, decision? You you know, you can kind of take it if it's there for you if you want, but you know, if not, then maybe you you lose out in in some sort of way because it does feel like it's going to become more compulsory, and maybe slams have the you know a, a voice there because of how you know how compelling they are to you know, tennis players in terms of, you know, wanting to play them and, you know, potentially win. 
Yeah, it's really tricky. It's echoing what's going on, you know, the discussions in society now about vaccine passports, mm. you know, for the general public. So it's really tricky because I think obviously if you are going to introduce a compulsory rule, you have to therefore make sure that everyone has like fair and equal access uh, to getting a vaccine at the same time. So no one's, you know, um, disadvantaged by the fact that, you know, they haven't had equal access to getting the vaccine in the first place. And obviously if someone's got a medical reason not to have it, then that's fine. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure the PTPA are going to have <laughs> words to, to say about this because obviously led by, you know, Novak Djokovic, who's pretty much outspoken as a kind of quite anti-vaccination uh, advocate. So I really don't know how this is good. That's going to go down if it becomes compulsory. I think there's certainly going to be arguments coming to the fore i mean talking of the the ptpa interestingly alexander bublik uh came out in the defense of the atp um against all of the um shenanigans with vashap pospisil last week uh, that we spoke about in our week one catch-up um he was quoted in one of his uh press conferences talking about saying you know i saw the video where vashap tried to sue the atp or whatever i'm not with the ptpa i enjoy what i make of course, if Novak makes me earn more, I'll say thank you, but I won't fight for it. At the end of the day, ATP feeds us and I don't want to go against it because I don't see anything that Novak or Vashek can really sue them for. So interesting sort of different, you know, op- almost kind of the complete opposite camp there uh, point of view from Bublik. We know he's a bit of a character and I think he can be, um, he likes to have his kind of two cents on, on different issues. And it's again, it's another interesting sort of perspective, I think, on the, you know, that, that, that world and that situation at the moment. And effectively saying that you can't, can't bite the hand that feeds you. And I think for someone like Bublik, who's doing really well at the moment on the tour, I feel like that's an inevitable sort of conclusion that he is coming to. Um, you know, the fact that he's doing really well, the ATP is 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 paying his way, and he doesn't want to he doesn't want to upset the apple cart. Yeah, and it's tricky because if you're much lower mm. ranked and you're not able to make a living, uh, you know, like Bublik is off the tour, you're probably going to have a completely different perspective, and I imagine you'd be more sympathetic to the the PTPA wanting kind of fairer distribution of prize money. So. Yes, it's very well for public to say that. But I mean, I do agree with him. Like, you have to also appreciate what the ATP are doing. You know, they are doing, um, still, they're still there and providing a lot. You know, without them, you know, what would the players have? You can't completely, um, break away from everything that they're providing. But it's, um, it's good that some, I think, you know, players need to come out and I think it's good that players are voicing their opinions, I suppose, whether that's for or against, because I guess a lot of them are still making their minds up or maybe they're not too bothered either way. Um, but I think, I think it's, it needs to be a fair, I guess, assessment of, of both sides. If I was a strategist in the PTPA headquarters, I, w- I would be looking at those players who, maybe don't share that opinion and as you said don't feel like that you know the ATP is feeding me or you know I'm not getting as much as I you know I should be because if they're going to have a strategy in place I do think they're going to need to have a sort of groundswell of support and not just have a few spoken you know outspoken individuals on the court or on social media or whatever and and potentially that might be a way that they do it and, and maybe it's focusing on those more lower ranked level players to uh you know to create some sort of support because um it, it's all as you said it's all well for someone like Bublik to come out and I guess say that because he's doing really well on, on the tour at the moment so he has no real qualms to kind of you know challenge the you know the establishment but I'm sure that there are other people who think the you know 
think think differently. Yeah, and at least he had his two pence worth without, you know, going on a massive rant on court <laughs> like uh, Pospisil. So, yeah, he's got extra brownie points for that. But um, let's just t- quickly touch on the doubles as well, Joel, out in Miami, because we had two Brits in the doubles final. We had Dan Evans and Neil Skupski uh, making it all the way through uh, as an unseeded pair to the doubles final uh, where they faced Mektic and Pavic, who unfortunately for British fans, beat them in straight sets. Uh, but that's their fourth title of the year. So they are absolutely racking titles up left, right and centre. They're such a good pair. So it was always going to be a, a tough ask for, for Dan and Neil to go all the way. But yeah, fantastic. They made it through to the final. Um, and yeah, I mean, especially for Dan Evans, obviously going out really early in the singles. Yeah. I think he'll, he made it good, you know, to, to get matches under his belt and get through to a doubles final. I know, really, really impressive from Dan Evans, I think, to kind of step in. I think the issue, obviously, Neil Skupski is playing this season with his brother, Ken Skupski, but Ken Skupski, uh, from what I've been reading, has, you know, had, uh, he has suffered from, uh, blood clots, uh, um, from a flight back from, I think, from South America, from Mexico. And as a result, wasn't able to kind of fly out, uh, and play in Miami with Neil. So I think Dan Evans sort of stepped in, um, to do him a favor and they, they just went from strength to strength, didn't they? They beat Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez in the second round, which must have felt, Really, really good. Uh, Neil Skupski seems to have the the you know the <laughs> he seems to be having the the better hand of of Jamie Murray at the moment. And then to beat Dodig and Palasic as well in the, the semi finals was was really really impressive. And yeah, really 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 happy for them. Neil Skupski seems to be I feel like the most informed British player at the moment. And there are a lot of Brits in that that men's doubles draw. And I, I don't think you would have said Evans and Skupski were the, the pairing that were going to make the, uh, that were going to make the, the final. No, for sure. And uh, I mean, Joe Salisbury and Rajiv Ram, they, they got to mm. the semis as well. So uh, also decent showing from them. But yeah, Neil Skupski, great form at the moment. And um, hopefully Ken Skupski will be back competing again as soon as possible. Cause yeah, uh, not nice to hear that he's uh, obviously uh, had an issue with, with a blood clot in his leg. So um, I, I don't think that is vaccine related. No. I think that was from the flight. So yeah, we can <laughs> safely say that, but uh, uh, we're going to take a quick break now, but do join us in the second half where we'll be uh, talking about the women's draw in Miami. So see you in a moment. This is The Passing Shot. You're joined by Joel and Kim. And now we're going to move on to the women's draw out in Miami, where we saw a bit of a a shortened final uh, than we were hoping for. But a final that's given us uh, a repeat winner. uh, First time uh, in a long time, I think, that a player has defended uh, the Miami Open title. uh, And that's Ash Barty claiming her second uh, Miami on the trot uh, as the top seed and I guess uh, reminding everyone why she is actually still the world number one I'm, I'm not gonna lie I think uh, when I was kind of uh, you know we were doing the preview for this episode yeah, preview for Miami I wasn't one of Ash Barty I did not think Ash Barty was going to go and do what she did she you know hadn't she didn't play in the, the Middle East you know she I think she was sort of recuperating in Australia from a, a little sort of niggle and you know she was coming into Miami quite cold she you know was match point down in you know her first match against Kokova so it, it didn't really feel like anything was there to suggest that she was going to go all the way through to the final but 
Lo and behold, she did. She beat Ostapenko, she beat Azarenka, she beat Sabalenka, and then she beat Svitolina. I mean, she came through um, some real battles there, some real three-set battles as well, particularly that one against Sabalenka um, in the quarterfinals. But I mean, it was just so, it was just so, so impressive. And, and really, I think she, you know, I think Miami Fair is a good hunting ground. As you said, it's now, it is now back to back titles. It is now 12 straight matches and she just loves playing there. And it really was, it really was the kickstart to her, I think, going to kind of world number one when she first won it. And now, it feels like it's the kickstart. It could be the kickstart to something, you know, greater with the, you know, the clay, the, you know, the clay season to come where we know that she's such a, you know, a good competitor. Yeah, I think she said that actually, even though she's won, you know, Roland Garros, uh, a gr- you know, Grand Slam title, that winning that first Miami Open title was still like one of the sweetest victories of her career. And I, I think essentially this is the first time that she's actually got to defend uh, one of those tournaments that she played in 2019 because obviously she couldn't defend Roland Garros last year because she you know stayed at home in Australia so it's almost almost like the slam defense she she never got to have I suppose and I think you know it was you know it could have been very different because as she said she did save match point in in her opening match but then you know she came through against you know Ostapenko Azarenka then you know Sabalenka Svitolina Andrescu like really really difficult top opponents um so you, you absolutely can't say she had an easy draw no. you know there's nothing you can no. say to diminish her performance this week everything that was thrown at her she was able to kind of dispatch in the end and it was same it was the same with Andrescu in the final and you know I think the build-up of you know a lot of a lot of the you know the commentary was about you know both players bringing uh you know their variety onto you know onto the court and you know who was going to come out the victor and I just felt that Ash Barty was very kind of I think was a lot more confident and started you know a lot better um, I think felt like Andrescu was hitting a lot of the the balls into that, and even though she kind of won six three for love, I you know with a retirement, I don't think that it it you know it wasn't really in doubt. And the way that she kind of uh, you know acted on court, she was very it was very uh, very controlled, and um, you know it was just very very impressive. And although I don't think she had necessarily, I don't think, I don't feel like although she has the variety, I don't think necessarily she has as much power as. Um, as Andrescu has uh, is capable of and has shown this week actually, but she didn't need it. Um, she was just able to kind of use that sort of Barty, the Barty way, um, with her kind of slice, uh, her slice backhands. And Andrescu really wasn't able to kind of you know make the most of it and kind of yeah, just just wasn't able to do it. And and Barty came through, so it was really 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 impressive from her. Yeah, and it was quite difficult conditions. It was quite windy. Mm. I think they were trying to work out how to, how to deal with it. Um, and it was the first time they played each other, actually. And, you know, we forget that Andrescu, you know, she burst onto the scene kind of two years ago and then obviously didn't play at all last year. So there's still a lot of players that she's not actually come up against and, and will, you know, people will be playing her for the first time and figuring out how to, how to play her. And I think Barty just got onto that really quickly. And it was a shame that Andrescu, um, I think it was like in the second game of the second set, she kind of went over on her right foot and, you know, subsequently retired, which, you know, I was thinking that's classic Andrescu, isn't it? A retirement with an injury, but, you know, she's had such a long, you know, history already at such a young age in her career of, you know, long term injuries that I guess she just didn't want to to risk anything, um, you know, setting a breakdown. You think, well, yes, it's 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 a shame. You know, I'm in a Masters final. I've, I've got to retire. But I guess it's more, you know, prevention and precaution. Um 
and you know she's still only 20 so it's it's wise i think it was a wise decision although obviously it was uh i guess an injury it wasn't a you know it was something that happened on the court so it feels like it's something that is quite isolated to that moment it wasn't something where you know she just stopped in play because she you know had you know, felt something, um, you know, in her, you know, in her body. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully she can kind of come back, but I think it was a, co- a sort of a reminder of, you know, her fragility and, you know, particularly at a young age and, and someone so talented, we don't want to see her talent being held back by her body. Um, you know, we've seen that, I think over, <laughs> we've seen that too many times, Kim, over the last sort of year since she kind of burst onto the scene with that, you know, that US Open victory. Um, but this tournament again was just a reminder of, of that ability that she possesses and going through the tournament it was i think um, as much as it was about that ability it was also i think about the the fitness as well because she came through so many three set tussles um she had that mm. fantastic match against anisimova um then she followed that up with uh, another three set wins a three set win against muguruza Again against Cerebes Torbo in the quarterfinals, and then again against Maria Sakari in the semi-finals. I mean, I think she spoke about you know how much work she's been uh, doing in the off season, particularly around her fitness, and you know to come through all those matches in three sets in such challenging conditions. I feel like her, even though she kind of retired, you know, had to retire in the final. I feel like if you just look at all those matches up to that moment it just shows you i think that her body certainly has progress and is 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 able to sort of deal with the you know the rigors of you know playing back-to-back matches at a you know a wta 1000 yeah i think she would be hopefully pleased with the way the rest of her body had held up Mm. up to that point because she was going into the final having played uh you know a lot more tennis than than bartino she was down in that final set to sakari in the semi-final and and came back you know she's had a lot of battling three set matches this week so um i mean just a note as well joel on maria sakari because she had a very interesting (laughs) week uh she had that really close match with pagula um she had to save six match points to to get past pagula a crazy crazy scoreline yeah and then she she beat naomi osaka in the semi-final uh Sorry, in the, in the quarterfinal, um, you know, six love, six four, uh, which is quite a shocking scoreline, I, I really. I thought April Fools had come early because uh, I was looking at that scoreline on um, on my app and in that first set, and it just kind of yeah, it just really, really took me took me by surprise. I actually think across the in the whole draw, I actually think Maria Sakari played probably the best tennis. Uh, we've seen, I think, in the women's draw over the last kind of couple of weeks in that match against Sasaka, but she just wasn't able to, I think, bring it through for the whole tournament, which was a bit of a, I think, a bit of a shame. But she really, really, really um, was impressive against Naomi Osaka. And you, Kim, you said it, something, you, you sensed something was, something weird was going to happen to Na- Naomi Osaka. And lo and behold, it did. Uh, were you expecting it to be a bagel, though? Because I, I certainly wasn't. No, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'd call that weird. I, I don't really know. But I mean, it was just, Asaka didn't serve very well in that no. first set. A lot more unforced errors than normal. Um, you know, came in, I guess, a, a bit cold, I suppose. Maybe she was just sort of took, t- you know, taken aback a, a bit by Sakari's performance because she was really, really, you know, on top of it. And, you know, she did go break down in that second set, but came back. And, and it's the first time I think Asaka's lost in, in about a year, I think, since that Cerebes Tormo, um, loss. 
over a year ago in the Fed Cup. So I'm sure, you know, Osaka won't be too heartbroken uh, over this. But uh, yeah, it does it does show that she's human, I suppose, uh, after, you know, finally, finally losing a tennis match. <laughs> uh, I mean, interestingly, her last two defeats then have both had bagels in them because that's Cerebes Tormo match she lost six love six three mm. and she lost uh in the Miami Open uh you know to Sakari six love six four so I don't know if she does have a sort of a bagel issue and does she I don't know if she just lets sets go if she just doesn't feel like mm. they're recoverable or not but it, I think it, it's it's sort of interesting that there's um you know her last two f- defeats have had that sort of um have had that that score line but yeah i think no i think i think for me the thing with maria sakari was that i think she was just full of confidence from uh you know her win against jessica bugula the fact that she saved six match points in pretty in pretty emphatic fashion i think she it just gave her a lift and she you know <laughs> she started that match with uh, against Osaka with such belief that regardless of what Osaka has done um, you know, over the last season, you know, last season or so, two Grand Slams, etc. She just put that all to one. She was just able to kind of put that all to one side and, you know, really kind of back herself. And you could see, you know, when she came through the the victory, she, and you know, she was a breakdown, I think, in that, that second set. And she had, I think, just tremendous belief that she was able to, she had the tennis in her locker to be able to put away someone as, as fantastic as Naomi Osaka. And, and I think we should say, actually, that um, Maria Sakari's coach, Tom Hill, is a, a, is a British coach. I think he's a Brummie. So massive credit to, to him and, and her team for, you know, getting her in the mindset to, beat someone as formidable as Osaka on paper because I think we were going into this tournament Kim thinking about like you know this is Osaka's kind of legacy is starting now and you know she's going to be undefeated for for years to come there was a lot of hyperbole and a lot of sort of hype I think around her but Maria Sakari just (laughs) she was just like having none of it and just like sourced completely straight through it. Yeah, and it's interesting now because, you know, what with Barty having defended her title, I think she's going to be definitely number one still until at least Madrid. And obviously we're going into the clay season. You know, you'd have to think, well, Barty, yeah, it's not her best or most favourite surface, but she's a Grand Slam champion on it. And I think historic over the last few years, she's she's got one of the highest winning percentages of WTA players on clay. Uh, and obviously then after you've got the grass court season where Barty is is a great grass court player. So, you know, Osaka is still unproven on clay and grass. So you'd be looking that, you know, you'd still be looking, I think, really for Barty to be the the one to watch and then to to have a good chance of keeping that number one ranking. And I think it's it's funny, isn't it? Everyone's sort of been having a go at her, like, oh, you didn't play last year and you're still number one. How how dare you? But it's like, well, hang on a minute. I, I deserve to be here. You know, I've turned up and I've won two titles this year. So um you can talk about that all you like, but I'm I deserve to be there and, you know, good good for her. She she really addressed that issue kind of head on um, in one of her I think in a in a conference after in a ma- post match conference after the final she said I know there has been a lot of talk about the ranking but I didn't play at all last year and I didn't improve any of my points whatsoever there were girls who had the chance to improve theirs so I felt like I thoroughly deserve my spot at the top of the ranking so she definitely was not pulling any punches she was definitely not skirting around the issue and you know fair play to her because she really she really backed it up with this performance in Miami and I've I've got to say I I was one of those people who you know I, I felt like Osaka had 
should you know it was kind of almost like you know the the number one you know we spoke i think after the australian open final that it, it, regardless of the rankings it, it did feel like osaka is the you know is the number one but i think we've got to remember with the rankings this is over a period of time and it's it's like grand sams are a little bit different and i think you know if if i was looking at kind of barty and osaka's kind of last 12 18 months i still think i would like prefer probably would have preferred osaka's in terms of of those kind of two grand slam wins but i think at the end of the day though ash barty is she is num you know she is number 1 she is top of the rankings and yes she's had a very kind of hard time i think of it compared to other players of late but i think that's what has made it so impressive kind of coming into miami the fact that she hasn't had you know those chances that other players have made because of the you know the situation in australia yeah definitely and um let's just move on joel to some of the other uh news that have has kind of emerged i suppose and uh, actually one thing you know before we kind of get on to previewing next week's draws i was quite bemused by this headline um you know we mentioned jessica bagula having lost in that epic to sakari but She's actually um, launched something called NFT cards, uh, which I had absolutely no <laughs> idea what an NFT was. But apparently it's a non-fungible token, uh, which have become very popular yep, amongst the uh, sports people. Had you, had you heard of them or is it just me? No, I, I, I have heard of them. Uh, as I said, they're ah. particularly in vogue at the moment. I still don't really know what they mean, but I feel like a lot, a lot of people are just attaching their names to this term because of their popularity. Yeah, I think I had to Google it afterwards and they're, they're touted as the digital answer to collectibles. Mm. So it's kind of like Bitcoin, but for collectibles. So basically, Jessica Pagula has launched her own one. Uh, she's the first female athlete to do it and the first tennis player. So you can buy a Jessica Pagula NFT card, um, which means I think you'd be in a very limited privileged category of people who would own own uh, one of these. And I, I don't really know, but I guess you buy it and then she's going to be um donating the money towards dog charities so um it, obviously it's good for a good cause uh but yeah I, i'm still quite confused as to um what they are but they're, they're just sort of digital assets uh so perhaps she'll she'll start this off and there'll be a whole load of other athletes and tennis mm. players getting involved maybe i'll buy a rafa nadal <laughs> nft one day i feel like it's you know she's extending her brand out there isn't she and mm. this is a way i think fans can feel like they oh, genuinely own something that is part of the jessica pegula world and it's come in the form of a, a, tra- a trading card so i don't know who's is this a one-off are we going to see other players go down this route who knows but i definitely it's definitely an interesting uh it's definitely an interesting time because i think yeah players are definitely looking after themselves and i think jessica pegula is one of those players who you know her stock has risen so much you know over the last mm. six months or so and you know she's she's obviously wanting to make the most of it or her pr team is anyway so uh this is this is the result probably yeah, I think she's also got a skincare company, so I probably would be more inclined to buy some of her like lotions and potions rather than uh, <laughs> a, a, a Pokemon card or something like that. But anyway, um, in other news, Joel, uh, bit of a bit of uncertainty over the French Open. I think that's been announced today. Uh, obviously, France are currently having a massive spike in COVID cases, so there is a bit of doubt over whether the French Open is going to be able to go ahead in in May and June as it normally does. Uh, I think they're kind of having discussions at the moment if they're going to be able to carry on with this sort of 
major sporting events. Uh, so it could potentially take place, I guess, in October again. Or, I mean, I don't think they'd cancel it. Obviously, I think we, we no. realized last yeah. year they couldn't afford to do that. <laughs> So, I mean, I think they personally, for me, I think they could, they could run it. They surely they could run it like the Australian Open where everything is, you know, regimented and they're completely on it with regards to testing and bubbles and quarantining. Surely they can just phone up Craig Tiley and be like, look, we need (laughs) some help here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure they could do that. Yeah. I've got, I've got no doubt they could do that. I just, I do wonder though, I I just get the sense of the, the locker room. There are some players who are just sick and tired of this bubble situation and maybe it, it, for them yes it was fine to have it at the US Open yes it was fine uh, to have it at you know the French and the Australian in, in January but uh, you know the longer it goes on I feel like they're going to get more weary of it and you know uh, maybe this could be the last one I, I don't know but maybe there needs to be some sort of kind of player consultation you would hope um, to figure out what is the best solution because at the end of the day you know, the ATP and WT players are going to have to, you know, go through it. So, you know, I think if it does go ahead as planned, I think they're going to have, you know, the players are going to have to be comfortable or the majority of them are going to have to be comfortable with what sounds like a, as you said, a pretty regimented setup, because I mean, the, the situation in France is, is not very good at the moment. I mean, it's just kind of looking at the, the stories. 46,000 new cases uh, recorded on Friday. It's, yeah, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be going down anytime, anytime soon. Yeah, I'm not sure if Monte Carlo is obviously because I know it's it's a principality but it obviously it's part it's in the French mainland so I assume that that's going to be going ahead uh I think that maybe you know Paris is obviously the major city so it's probably worse there than it is on the south of France but you know haven't heard anything about that so fingers crossed that can still happen uh but we do have some tournaments that are happening next week Joel uh and it is the start of the clay season proper uh obviously we've had the Argent the the golden swing Argentina and other such places but we've got Charleston WT GA 500 event um, the green clay which is always yeah the green yeah we need to have more green clay tournaments on on the tour i just love the look of them and it's just so i don't know i think there's a maybe a couple of others fans listeners probably gonna let me know um but charleston is is a wta 500 now so quite a high profile event it's very very stacked uh it's good to see ash barty just kind of getting on with things and going from Miami to play in Charleston. She's the top seed. Uh, Muguruza is also there. Sophia Kennan is the second seed. Mertens as well. Kvitova has taken a wild card. It's a pretty stacked draw, isn't it, for a 500? It is. And we've got a cheeky little Coco Goff Svetlana Peronkova first round. I know. Round. That is very exciting, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no rest for, uh, for Ash Barty. Off she goes to Charleston. I suppose it's not a million miles away from Miami. Mm. So, uh, so same time zone. I've always wanted to go to Charleston for the, um, the architecture, but uh, I mean, I'd happily go for the tennis as well. But um, yeah, looking forward to seeing a bit of Charleston next week. Uh, we've also got a WTA 250 in Colombia, in Bogota, uh, which is a, well, there's a lot of names in this field that I'm not too familiar with. Uh, Zheng Sai Sai is the top seed, but uh, Clara Towson is there, which is the young Danish player who won her first title not so long ago. Uh, but I think all eyes will really be on Sara Cerebes Tormo, you know, very much an informed player. She's the second seed. 
got to fancy her for the win based on her recent form. It doesn't look right having the top seed from China in South America on a clay court. It does, there's something there that just, it doesn't feel <laughs> doesn't feel right. I, I, I'm completely with you. I feel like Sara Saribes Tomé. I mean, she's the most inform, uh, one of the most informed players at the moment. I think she's, I think she's second. I think she's second tied with most wins on the WTA tour this season behind Muguruza. So I think, yeah, she'll certainly, even though she's the second seed, I feel like she certainly should be going in there as a favorite. Clara Torson, as you said, I mean, she's the, she's the fourth seed and we know her, her potential. So I think she, anyone I think in that top path really, I, I mean, it could, it really could come from anywhere. I wouldn't really look at the seedings, but, um, yeah, it's a, definitely a big opportunity for a lot of players there. For sure. And uh, just on the the ATP draw um, draws, we've got the 250 out in Marbella. Uh, PCB is the top seed. <laughs> uh, lovely stuff. Spaniard top seed at home in Spain. Uh, lots of Spaniards in the draw. Alcaraz. Uh, Fonini is the second seed. So, yeah, nice little event out in uh, Marbella. Francisco Serendolo, Kim. Yeah. How will he get on? Yeah. One of the highlights uh, of the Golden Swing, one of the probably the better players, uh, you know, carrying his form through can he can he repeat that form in south america in europe is a big question i want to know um i think um zverev actually was uh, i think i saw earlier in the week he was he was sort of down to take a wild card but um he i think decided against it which went to alcaraz uh we've also got holger rune uh from denmark with a wild card so a couple of kind of really young players uh you know finding their feet on the kind of the ATP tour. So again, I think those are a couple of players I'm interested to see how they do. Lucas Puy is unseeded, uh, which feels potentially very dangerous. I could easily see him, uh, you know, going deep and he could come up against Ramos Vinolas in the, the second round. But um, yeah, again, an interesting, interesting, interesting draw that I think has opportunities for various players. But Kim, at the end of the day, is, is this all of all I'm saying is, is Spaniard going to win it, basically? Oh, I hope so. I mean, I hope, I hope Feliciano Lopez, Lopez wins it. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always up for a bit of him. I, I'm just a bit um, sort of not gutted. It's probably a bit of a strong word. But why was uh, Serendolo's brother not also given uh, a wild card? Oh, no, actually, Francisco wasn't given a wild card. I guess he's just the higher ranked. But I was a bit, yeah, I would like to have seen both <laughs> brothers there. But we'll see. <laughs> um, and then we've also got an ATP event in Cagliari. Uh, I think, is that in Sicily or Sardinia? Italy Sardinia, somewhere, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dan Evans is the top seed. How exciting. Uh, might might face Lorenzo Massetti mm. in the second round. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a tight turnaround. He's uh, obviously flying back from from a Miami doubles final yesterday to to Italy. So uh, we'll have to see how he gets on on a clay court. Not his best surface. So that's what I was thinking. I mean, he is the top seed. I'll be very impressed though if that goes to the form book and he comes out as as the winner. I feel like he does need a few. I would. I would. I feel like he does need a few singles wins under his belt. I'm hoping that doubles sort of run to the final has has done his confidence a world of good. But uh, yeah, potential. I think. I would like to see Evans versus Massetti. I mean, Massetti has to get through Dennis Novak, first of all, but that could be a quite a, a tasty match. I don't know if there's going to be fans uh, out there. Um, 
but if if there are so you you know they're going to be rooting for Musetti so um yeah that mm. be, could be quite interesting Basilash Vili also in the top half along with John Millman um and with Struff as well it's not um you know it, it obviously it is a 250 but there's certainly some informed players there i mean Basilash Vili won in Dubai on on the hard court so again he's going to be a player that is probably going to be quite uh, quite dangerous yeah, and also eyebrows will be uh, raised again as to whether he should still be playing at the mm. moment, what with the uh, yep. impending court case. But interestingly as well, Gilles Simon is back. And, uh, you know, we mentioned that he had decided to take a bit of a break because of all of the COVID regs and measures that he wasn't really, you know, enjoying being on the tour. And I feel like that was only a couple of weeks ago that he decided to go He's on that break. So maybe, yeah, maybe he got a bit bored at home and thought, actually... You know, <laughs> restrictions aside, I'd rather be at, back out there. And uh, I suppose Italy is, you know, fairly close. So he probably fancied uh, venturing back out again. Um, but yeah, I think that pretty much brings us to a close. Obviously, we'll be back in a week to to round up on all these um, tournaments. But Joel, one last thing before we finish. Some really nice news, uh, courtesy of Gems You've Life. You've been waiting to say uh, this the whole episode, <laughs> I think. Oh, well, I think everyone who listens, well, I think almost everyone would probably have heard perhaps if they're on social media, but, um, yeah, Gail Monfils and Alina Svetlina are engaged to be married. So, um, they announced that over the weekend on their social media. So yeah, really nice news. Uh, Gem's life are going strong and are, are going to be forever, I suppose. <laughs> I'm looking forward to all the wedding pics. I think they're getting married in, in July. There was sort of some like cryptic Svitolina messages, weren't there, in the, on her Instagram, I think, during the week. And maybe it was sort of, sort of referencing this. But, um, yeah, it's, it's great to see. I mean, it's such an, um, I feel like it's so unpredictable, but I love it at the same time. I love the fact that it came, the news broke, I think it came out during the women's finals. So, you know, obviously I wanted to steal the spotlight away from, from Barty and Andrescu. No, no, I'm only joking. But, um, yeah, no, great, great to see. And, uh, I'd, I'd love for them, you know, they should play mixed doubles together as a like can you imagine a mixed doubles pairing that are a married couple like i don't has that ever happened before like i mean it throws up endless opportunities i think of of first i think potentially um on the on the tour because yeah you don't normally get sort of really good higher high ranked players both male Mm. and female um you know married and and yeah could play tennis i guess uh you know with each other at the same time it might have happened like back in the day, but obviously there's Graf and Agassi, but I think they got married after yeah. they sort of, you know, played. <laughs> um, and then I can just think, uh, Merka and Federer, uh, oh, yes, at the course. Olympics, yep. but they weren't married at the time, obviously, but I think that was when they sort of started dating. But listeners, let us know. Do you know any, yeah. <laughs> do you know any, any couples, any couples that have played, uh, on the, uh, professional tours? We'd love, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but yeah, we're going to wrap it up for this episode uh, of the passing shot. I hope you've enjoyed our Miami week to catch up. Remember to subscribe to the passing shot tennis podcast podcast on your podcasting platform of choice to stay up to date on all the latest tennis news whether that's on apple Podcasts, spotify overcast Castbox, stitcher wherever you listen to us make sure you hit that subscribe button to stay up to date on the tennis world and you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Passing Shot Pod. So do give us a like, give us a follow. Uh, if you don't already, tell all your friends about us as well. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, uh, just pop us a message on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Or you can email us as well, passingshotpod at gmail.com. 
and we will be back next Sunday for another catch up. We're going to be talking about all of the tournaments we've just previewed, uh, from Charleston through to Cagliari as well. So I hope you can join us for that. Uh, but in the meantime, I hope you're safe and well wherever you are in the world and we will see you again soon. We'll be right back.